came first in 2008 and did a men's retreat with you. And then uh, 2012, did a church meeting. 2013, did another men's retreat and church meeting. So, and it's been since then that I was with you. Um, I was with my friend Jeremy Sweat last year up in Connecticut. And so some of you know Jeremy from his dad. Uh, I'm trying to think what else is common denominator. Normally I have my family with me. My truck's, my tr truck's fine. My trailer's on the fritz right now. We have slide-out issues, and my wife did not want to be stranded somewhere where we cannot get the slide-outs in. So you can totally, I know pastor can understand that. Funny, when I came in, okay, so I saw a Michigan shirt or mic. I saw an Ohio State. I grew up a Penn State fan. Isn't it amazing how God can just unify all these disjointed people? I was thinking about, if you like sports, I, I live in Kansas City, and uh, I've been a Chiefs fan and a Royals fan for almost 30 years now, and I was thinking about, you guys would relate, if you're a Georgia Bulldogs fan, how you felt winning the national championship uh, is kind of how we have felt as Chiefs fans when it comes to the football, and then if you're a Braves fan, you probably can relate to how I felt as a Royals fan. For years, you go through lean times, you know, you're looking back to the 90s when you had World Series teams, and then finally... Get it done. Uh, was it last year or the year before? The year before, yeah, okay. So I can empathize with all that. One area we're all going to relate is in the area of fatherhood and manhood. I want to talk to you about that tonight. In fact, I'm going to give you a message right now. I'm going to do your job. We're going to go to Genesis. If you would go back to Genesis chapter 1 with me. Genesis chapter 1. Do your job. I remember when I was a kid, my dad was a general contractor. I grew up in New Jersey southern New Jersey, about uh, 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Where I grew up, uh, the, the word Wawa means something to people that grew up where I grew up. Wawa is a, you know, I, I live in Kansas City now. QT was in Kansas City before it came to Atlanta. So quick trip, you know, that's kind of the go-to place now. Wawa is where, where I grew up doing. And uh, my dad was a general contractor. And so he had a, he had a basement wood shop. And the wood shop... He had lays and all kinds of stuff down there and sawdust everywhere, but he had a corner office. And I remember he, a couple things unique about the office. It was old paneling, you know, done in the 1970s. Uh, it was dingy. He did his book work down there. We didn't even have, we had landlines for phones back then. And the business shared our family lines. So if the call was from my mom or somebody else, my dad had this old taxi horn on the wall. And he would just, so my mom would answer upstairs, knowing, hey, the call's not for me, it's for you. And then on the wall, and I actually got this last night, my, we're, we're going through my parents' house, both my parents are with the Lord now. My dad had this plaque on the wall, and I remember this from my childhood. When I works, I works hard. When I sits, I sits loose. And when I thinks, I falls asleep. <laughs> that was in my dad's office, and I had flashbacks of it. The other day, I was preaching in a... Pensacola, sorry, I'm slipping on my ear here. I was preaching in Pensacola. I, I did a campus church meeting and then a couple days in college chapel, but I had a, a girl come up to me in the uh, Christian Academy. She's a teacher, and she said, hey, I want to show you something, and tell me if this is yours. So she gave me this book called Lessons from a Father to His Son. John Ashcroft was governor of Missouri and later senator of Missouri, my home state now. And... Uh, there's a note inside from me to my dad. And she had picked this up at Goodwill. I said, oh, I know how to explain that. My, my sister's been going through my parents' house and getting rid of all the old books. And she probably didn't even know that I had written a note to my dad in there. But the ironic thing is, I didn't even sign my last name. Obviously, it's to my dad. I signed it Rich. 
And somehow this gal that I don't know realized this was from my dad. And she said, I thought you might want to have it. I said, oh, at least let me pay for it. She said, it cost me a quarter, you know. I don't need the money. <laughs> but I want to read to you a note I wrote in uh, 1998. My dad passed away in 2008. So this is 10 years before my dad died. He was only 65, too, when he died. But once you listen to this, it kind of gives you a little background. I'm sorry to be distracting on this. I, Brother Barnes, I don't know why I'm having to pinch this. So if, just let me know if I fade out. Okay. Uh, Christmas of 1998. I wrote to my dear dad at Christmas. Thank you, Dad, for all the wisdom you've imparted to me over the years. The first indelible lesson I remember you giving me was when I was a young child. You sat me down in the basement office and drilled, uh, drilled me on looking you and others in the eyes when being spoken to or when speaking. You pointed out that we seem distracted or disinterested if we don't focus on another person's eyes. The next and most important lesson I learned was to trust Christ as my Savior. You led me to him when I was 10. You also taught me to love the truth above men's approval or the party line interpretation of theology by the truth, Proverbs 23. A vital lesson came when I heard you tell your Sunday school class, only God can please God, Romans 8.8. 8. You expounded, the Holy Spirit must enable and energize us if any effort we expend is to bring delight and glory to God. You taught other lessons by pure example. For instance, you've lived out what's commonly called the Protestant work ethic. You worked hard to provide for us, and because it's only right to do your best in what you do. You also taught by example that a man's best friend among humans should be his wife. Thank you for loving mom. Thanks for loving mom so faithfully and fervently. It's true. The best thing a dad can do for his children is to love his mother. Yeah, you really took by that. I'll come up on 30 years of marriage in May. And I tell you, Angela, my wife, is my very dearest friend. And I learned that from my dad. Dad, thank you for giving all three of us kids a lesson from a father. Uh, I'm sorry, giving all of these as lessons from a father to his son. I know you'll love, uh, love Senator Ash, uh, Ashcroft's book, You've Done For Me What His Dad Did For Him. And I love you for it. So interesting, I just got that last week. And I thought, I'm going to be doing an ends meeting. This is great. And I just gave you a synopsis of some of the most important life lessons I got from my dad. And I had written out, before I even got this book, um, an introduction to the message where we're going. And it started off with this. I remember dad told me when I was a teen, if you're going to understand life, you need to understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You know, interesting, a couple weeks ago, I was driving back from Tampa, Florida, to Pensacola, pulling our trailer, and uh, my wife follows me in a van because my girls, older girl's old enough to drive, so we take a van with us, and I have a Freightliner truck and a trailer. So I'm pulling the truck and trailer, and so I'm doing my own thing while they're following along. And I was listening to a podcast by Charlie Kirk. Uh, I'll tell you what, any of you follow politics, Charlie Kirk is a really good one to listen to on giving you a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. And Charlie Kirk, ironically, that day I was listening, said, yeah, if you're going to make sense of life, you've got to get a hold of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The exact same thing my dad had told me. So I want, to, I want you to listen to this. I've written this some time ago. You talk about how timely all this coming together. Here's a summary of the early chapters of Genesis. God made the universe. God created life. God made humans. God created two sexes, male and female. 
He made marriage to be a union of an individual man to an individual woman. One man married to one woman for a lifetime. God gave them the capacity to produce offspring. When they mate, they sometimes conceive. When they do conceive, the children born to them are their charge. It's their job, not the government's, not the school's, not society's, to provide for, to train, and to love their kids. Society is established on the building block of the family unit. When families fail, society is hardened. When marriages dissolve, children are hurt. It behooves the Christian to recognize the rightful place of God, to submit to his sacred word, to embrace the unique role of the sexes, to honor the sanctity of sex and marriage, and to fully own his obligation to love, provide for, and train his children. Dads, the job starts with you. Own the task, love your wife, train your children. I first wrote that out in uh, July of 2021 as I was preparing the message on this passage of Scripture, and I thought, you know, those paragraphs sound radical in our day. In fact, if you were to post that on a lot of social media sites, you'd be canceled. You, you, you know, before Elon Musk came along, you'd have been put off Twitter, that's for sure. But I want to tell you something, that is timeless, eternal truth. And why do I say those things? I mean, do I think I have a, a better right than anybody else to say there are only two sexes and that marriages are gay? No, I don't, I don't have a right, but God does. And God's the authority. And those truths are based in his timeless word. And the word of God is not just arbitrary. The word of God is authoritative. And that's why we need to go to it for answers. So let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to give you just two areas. I don't have a, a uh, PowerPoint for this one. But if you want to follow along, there are two key areas we're going to look at. And the first is the heavenly view of human beings. The heavenly view of human beings it's in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, specifically, I'll take it out of verses 26 to 31. But let's start in Genesis 1 1. Let's get a foundation here. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, so it was empty. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. The evening and the morning were the first day. Okay, so now jump down in the passage to verse 26, if you will. Verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. God blessed them. God said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the uh, fruit of a tree yielding seed to you, it shall be for me. To every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the earth, to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I've given every green herb, uh, I'm sorry, given every green herb for me, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made. Behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. I took time to read from verse 1 and jump down to verse uh, 31 to say, first of all, God said this about creation. It was done in six days. Okay, And those are six literal days like we understand today, 24-hour periods. By the way, God could have done it in six nanoseconds if he wanted to. But he, he says he did it in six days. And interesting, some people say, well, 
How, how come the earth seems to be millions of years old? Well, you got to understand this. God made everything with maturity. I mean, the trees were already bearing fruit. Adam and Eve were not little bitty infants. They were adults uh, with the capacity to bear children. And the stars, when God spoke them into existence, light is already showing up millions of light years away. Everything was created already with maturity. And if God wanted to do it over thousands of years, he could have. If he wanted to do it in a blink of an eye, he could have. But he said he did it in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested, which is interesting. Because God doesn't need rest. But he rested and set an example for us. And uh, not only that, I want you not only to notice that God made everything. But he says everything he looked at, he said it's very good. He didn't say, ah, some things here could be improved upon. He said it's very good. And by the way, he said there are two sexes. Keep that in mind. And it is amazing, God warns us about science falsely so-called. Have you had any reason to question what is postulated as science today? Beware of science falsely so-called. Because biologically, there are XX chromosomes and XY chromosomes. You're either a male or a female. This whole idea of transgenderism flies in the face of God. It's not just political correctness, it's biblical incorrectness in its audacity. We need to understand that. You think, well, you know, you don't want to upset the up part. Let me tell you something. If we don't get back to basic biblical truth, we're going to have a whole generation that are thoroughly confused about their identity. It's already happening. And no wonder their kids are suicidal. I mean, coming out of COVID was bad enough, putting them in isolation. But now telling them that they really don't know whether they're a boy or a girl. I, I was listening to uh, an interview uh, Tucker Carlson did last week of a guy who is now detransitioning. No, I'm sorry. That was a Charlie Burke. And he was detransitioning. He had transitioned to a female, and now he's transitioning back. And he said, you know, I, I, real, I started going to church. I started realizing God made me with value and purpose. And he said, but you think about this, girls that have their breasts cut off and, you know, genital mutilation, etc. There are, there are irreversible things being done. And he said, it's all in the idea of, oh, you're not happy, and so let's try this and try that. And he said, every time I went through a surgery, every time I went through plastic surgery, for a few minutes, for a few days, I thought, this is great. And then I went back to deeper depression. He said, I realized what I was doing. I was just trying to undo what God had made. And he said, it wasn't until I embraced the person that God made me, the man that God made me, that I understood I had worth and I had value because God made me. Amen. So let's start with this then. As I said, number one, the heavenly view of human beings. I wrote down A, God made them. God made them. That's in verses 26 and 27. And God made them what? In his own image. I like this note came out of uh, the New Pilgrim Study Bible. Of all creation, only man was created like God. A trinity. Plants have only a body. Animals have a body and soul. Man alone has a body, soul, and spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Someone has likened the body to sense consciousness. The soul to self-consciousness, and the spirit to God-consciousness. That's interesting. Okay, so a plant has a body, and uh, plants will re respond to stimuli. So like when the sun comes up, plants will open up, and when the sun goes down, they'll go. So there, there is that sense-consciousness. But a soul is what gives us self-consciousness. Now, animals have self-consciousness, and you and I have self-consciousness. But um, man, sorry about this. Man alone has uh, soul con or, uh, spirit consciousness. He's aware of God, God consciousness. 
you know, you don't see a bunch of cows getting together for a Sunday morning worship. Well, they were made by God, but they have no awareness of God. We were made to be aware of God, to have a consciousness of God. So we're made in his image, but also we're made in two distinct sexes. Two distinct sexes. So, God made them, but also, B, God blessed them. I'll go back to verse 28 again. Verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it. It's very interesting. You know, some people act as if man is a blight to planet Earth. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to the radicalism today, you feel like, hey, Green New Deal, what we need to do is get rid of humans, then this earth could flourish. Well, that's not what God said. God said man was over all creation. In fact, remember Jesus talked about take no thought for your life. He said, you know, you, the, the sparrows, they don't have to build houses. You know, the lilies in the field, they don't have to worry about what they're clothed. And he says, if God take care of them, will he not much more clothe you? Are you of not more value to your father? I want you to notice that God said humans are more valuable than animals. God said humans are more valuable than plants. That's not my opinion, that's what God said. But we don't, we, we don't start with this book. We get our everything turned upside down. So why are we coming to a retreat like this? To come back to what God says in his word. Because if we don't start with the Bible as our foundation, with God's revelation as our foundation, we are left to all kinds of crazy and bizarre conclusions. And they're not just radical ideas, they're damaging conclusions. So God bless them. And then, see, God charged them. Look at verse 28. What did he charge them with? God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. So the whole idea is that God never warned against overpopulation. Uh, I was talking to Joel Wagner, and he said, My, my brother-in-law was his CIT counselor at the Wild years ago. My brother-in-law, Michael Westberg, traveled with me for 11 years doing um, children's ministry and music. And then Michael Pastors now, in uh, Raymore, Missouri, just south of Kansas City. Michael has 11, I'm sorry, Michael has eight children. And we have often talked about that. Um, when he traveled with me, they had five kids. And then I remember the day we were at uh, the church he now pastors. We were doing a meeting. The pastor, Derek Thomas, had resigned to go back to um, Ukraine as a missionary. And so Pastor Jerry Wass, the music pastor, was kind of filling in. And he said, Michael, would, uh, he said, Rich, would you and Michael come and do a meeting even if we don't have a pastor? We said, sure. And that week we're back in Kansas City, which is where our home church was. And uh, Michael got a call from his wife who had just gone to have a sonogram. And I remember he said, they said, what? Twins? <laughs> and as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, my life is about to change. Because at the time they had five kids. Well, I realized having seven children from ages 10 and under would be very difficult to get them in church every night. And I realized, okay, my evangelistic team is about to break up. Uh, and so Michael, you know, ended up taking a pastor, the very church that we were in. He ended up becoming the interim there and then the pastor. And uh, later they had another one, their, their youngest one, Kaylee, the little Down Center girl. She's number eight. And, you know, we've, we've often talked. I, I always thought I'd have a big family. Now, in my world, I thought five would be a big family because I'm an evangelist. You know, I live at 400 square feet. Um, we only have three dogs, but it wasn't because we were, you know, only one and a half. We would take whatever God gives us. He only gave us three. But it's funny to me. Sometimes we live in such a world that if a missionary comes in and they've got eight or ten kids, sometimes people look at them like, okay, huh, don't they know? <laughs> yeah, they know. It's society that says if you've got more than two kids, you're irresponsible. You know what's amazing to me? 
all the talk now of countries like China that limited, you know, it's a one-child program. Japan, that what's the fertility rate in Japan? It's something like 1.4 now. All these industrialized societies that don't even have enough children being born to replace the population. So you know what you have to do? Uh, you've got to open up your borders to bring in people from other countries so you can have slave labor because you don't have enough of your own population to take care of people. That's what ends up happening. And it was God who said, be fruitful and multiply. God did not say, if you have a large family, that's irresponsible. Really interesting, I was listening to Dan Bongino this week, and he said, you know, the overpopulation myth. If, if you gave every person in the planet enough uh, land to raise gardens on, et cetera, you could fit the world's population in Texas and Louisiana and, uh, and Mississippi. The entire world. In fact, I heard years ago, you could take the whole world's population and give everybody a foot and a half square to stand. You could fit the entire world's population in the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida. The entire world in the city limits of Jacksonville. Yeah. Now, we couldn't all live if we only had a foot and a half square. But the point is, if you could fit the whole world standing together in Jacksonville, you, the world is not overpopulated. But we're being fed all kinds of lies. God said, you know, you have families, and I'm going to bless you for it, and you have dominion over the earth. So, these are just basic Bible truths, but I want to tell you, isn't it ironic that the most basic Bible truths seem so radical in our day? That's why we've got to get back to the basics. So, God charged them. Then, D, God provided for them. Look at verses 29 and 30. God provided for them. God said, Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth. Verse 30, And every beast of the earth, every fowl, everything that creepeth upon the earth, I've given every green herb for me. So, back then, before the fall, there was just um, a vegetarian diet. And you may say, yeah, I think that's the way to go. That's fine if you want to do that. Um, I like where the Lord said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Amen. And so you, you can be vegan if you want. Uh, but before the fall, you know, it was just vegan or, or just a vegetarian. And, uh, and even the animals. So, you know, um, what did dinosaurs eat back then? Because there were dinosaurs. I mean, God made that. Well, back then, everything was just living off of uh, vegetation, and it was good. And then later on, as society changed, then uh, God provided meat, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm glad most men's meetings include chicken and steak and things like that. Uh, then I want you to see this in verse 31. God approved them. Look at verse 31. God saw everything that he made. Behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning, sorry, evening and the morning were the sixth day. Okay, so God had made everything, and he approved them. He put a stamp of approval on it. My, daughter, my uh, sister was fifth grade when my parents decided to put us in a Christian school. And the youngest one, Jen, my sister Lauren, was in seventh grade, and I was the oldest. I was in ninth grade, and my parents put us in a school in New Jersey, Gloucester County Christian School. Now, we had grown up in a, in a church that did not preach the Bible. Uh, I grew up in a Methodist church that was not Bible preaching. And so my dad had gotten saved through a man at work that led him to Christ. My dad worked for the mobile oil company as a pipe fitter in Paulsburg, New Jersey. And his friend, Will Guth, who was a Baptist, led him to Christ. And my dad thought, why is our church not preaching this? And so uh, we started looking around for churches in our denomination that were preaching the Bible. Spent four years doing it, never did find one. Finally, we left and went to a church that was preaching the Bible, happened to be a Baptist church. And... Uh, I remember my dad decided, okay, we, we've lost a lot of time here. We're going to put you kids in a Christian school. So my sister is going to Christian school 
And she's in fifth grade, and she comes home with a Bible class assignment, and they were learning um, catechisms. Now, I, I remember as a kid, only my Catholic friends learned catechisms. So I thought, well, what is this, Catholic? I found out catechisms are a series of questions and answers for teaching doctrine. And so the uh, catechisms were used by Bible-believing Presbyterians and were used by Baptists. Charles Spurgeon used catechisms at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And so both the first question on the Baptist Catechism and on the Presbyterian Catechism, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, was, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Now what does that mean? What is the, what's the main reason God made man? Answer. Yeah, God's chief end, I'm sorry, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Yeah. Well, I thought that sounded nice and poetic, but I wondered, is that really true? And it had a couple of really important scriptures. You might want to jot them down. One was Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone that's called by my name, I've created him for my glory. I've formed him, yea, I've made him. Okay, so that's Isaiah 43, 7. Then there's Revelation 4, 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So God made you for his glory and for his pleasure. What does that mean? The word glory, like, uh, I don't know how many times, you, if you've ever been to the Wilds camp, you know, we'll stand up in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. The word glory is the word doxa. Have you ever summed the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Okay, I, every chapel we went to in college, we started with that. And uh, what, why is it called the doxology? Doxology comes from the word dogza, which means glory, opinion, or estimate. Do all to the right estimate of God, the right opinion of God. Here's the problem. All have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. Yeah. So the fall ruined our capacity to bring glory to God. What does redemption do? Restores us to fellowship with God and the capacity to glorify God. We'll get into it. That's why you, you cannot please God without being born again. Amen. I read through that that uh, note to my dad, thank you for teaching that only God can please God. He was commenting on Romans 8, 8, they that are in the flesh do not please God. And he made this statement, only God can please God. And I remember saying, Dad, what about, you know, like the, the scripture talked about um, Elisha, or no, Elijah, he had this testimony, that, sorry, Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. So it says he pleased God. He says, Rich, I'm not saying that man can't please God, but it's only God working through man that enables him to please God. Amen. In other words, you know, if you're doing drugs or committing immorality, obviously that doesn't please God. But if you get up and preach a sermon in the flesh, that doesn't please God. Amen. If you sing a special in church or try to win a soul to Christ and you do it in the power of the flesh, that doesn't please God. Amen. Only God can please God. And so when you come to saving faith, you have his nature imparted to you. And you have his ability imparted to you. And that's then how you can please God. We'll get into that in more detail. So you were made glorify God, also to enjoy Him. How do we enjoy each other? We interact, we have fellowship. And God made you for fellowship with Him. Look, salvation is not just having a ticket to heaven when you die. That's a great benefit of salvation, but that's not, that's not salvation. Oh, I'm going to heaven when I die. You were saved to have a relationship with God. Fundamentally, Christianity is not religion, it's a relationship with Christ. We're going to focus on that this week. 
You were made to have a relationship with God. So, that's Genesis chapter 1. Alright, let's jump over to chapter 2. So that is the heavenly view of human beings. Here's the second. The give and take of God and man. This is from Genesis 2. The give and take of God and man. So what you get in chapter 2 is God goes into some further detail, some more uh, specifics, if you will, about creation. Pick up in Genesis uh, 2, verse 7. We'll jump ahead a little bit here. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Okay, I noted, first of all, A, man was formed by God. Man was formed by God. And notice he became a living soul. I wrote down uh, Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. You're not just a material being. I think that's one of the reasons suicide is so rampant in our day. If you, if you believe evolution, then, then you're just a compilation of chemical materials. And, and what is the point of existence? You know, if, if Darwin was right, survival of the fittest, um, you know, only the strong should survive. So those who die off, it's because they're weaklings. You know, these poor kids in our society today. No hope. So what do they do? They end up taking their lives. Well, here's the problem. They do so on the basis of believing a lie. Oh, I just go back to the dust when I die. No, you don't. You go to heaven or hell when you die. Amen. You're an eternal soul. You were made for In fact, hold your place here. This is so important. Let me take a moment just to expand on it. Go to John chapter 5 for a minute. John chapter 5. I was driving today and listening to the Bible for a little bit on my drive. And I was in, in the book of John. And boy... These are such important scriptures. John 5, beginning in verse 24. Jesus is speaking here. Notice what he says. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. I, I love that because, first of all, you, you receive everlasting life by believing on him, not by behaving a certain way. Will change your behavior, but you don't earn salvation by your behavior. It's a gift of God. But you believe on Him, you have. That's present tense, everlasting life. That's why I believe in the eternal security of the believer. Because when you believe, you have, have, present tense, right? Have everlasting life. Well, if you had it and lost it, would it really be everlasting? No, it wouldn't be everlasting. So when you believe on Him, you have right now and always will have everlasting life. Everlasting life, he says, he is passed from death to life. That's what we call perfect tense. Something that occurred at a point in time that has ongoing ramifications. Like if you never met me before, I'm wearing a piece of jewelry that tells you something about me, and I'm not, I don't wear jewelry, but I do wear a wood piece. What does that tell you about me? I'm married, yeah, it's a wedding ring, right? If you never met me before, you'd know, oh, well, you'd read my left hand and say, oh, he's married. Okay, that was a one-time decision May 22nd, 1993, with ongoing ramifications. Uh, three children later, uh, mutual bank account. Uh, when, when we're all done tonight, I'll call my wife and talk to her. You know why? Because of all the people in the world, that, that's the person I'm one with. It's a one-time decision that has ongoing ramifications. Okay, so you come to Christ for salvation. You have everlasting life. Jump ahead, verse 28. Marvel not at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Death does not end at all. 
How can people even rave hear his voice? Because when you die, your body dies, but your spirit and soul live on. Verse 29, shall come forth they that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Now, at first glance, you might think, okay, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Well, listen, there's none that do it good, no, not one. Doing good is a product of being saved. It's not the means by which you are saved, okay? But what I want to point out is there's a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of damnation. You may say, I don't believe that. Well, you will when you die, but the problem is it's too late then. That's why Jesus said, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. You may be in this conference and say, well, I believe like all these other guys do. Look, we're not telling you to believe what we do because we're telling you. But we are telling you you should believe because God says so. And I want to tell you, if, if you look at society and where things are going, it should be pretty obvious to see that society without God is not working out very well. Amen. All you're left with is absurdity and lies. And God said, the Lord Jesus Christ said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Yeah, and that's why this is all so basic, but, but I got thinking about it. 20 years ago, if I were to preach this, I'd be, no, it's just so basic. But now it is just radical in light of society. But it is the radical truth that will change you. That's why we're going back to foundational truths as I start today. So, God made you, all right, and... God, man was formed by God. We uh, saw that. Then I want you to see this. Man was given a job by God. Uh, so in verse 8, let's pick up here. Back in Genesis 2. Right? Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The river went out of Eden, to water the garden, and that's it was parted, became four heads. Uh, look at verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So I want you to notice, before ever there was such a thing as sin, there was something ordained called work. Okay, work is a four-letter word, but work is not a four-letter word. It's not a bad word, okay? I say that connotatively. Uh, work was ordained by God. Did you notice that? Man had a job before before um, there was sin in the world. I don't know how many times now. It's not society being turned on its head. Have you been to restaurants where they said, we'll be closing early or we only drive throughs open because we don't have enough workers? I was at Walmart uh, yesterday, to come up, and they said, we'll be closing at 7 p.m. because of lack of, of uh, shift workers. Well, there's only one guy in the store, and I guess it's Time ended at 7, they normally were open until 9 or 10, but, you know, nobody's there working. I find myself, one of my uh, favorite ways to give out tracts nowadays is put a couple of dollars in a tract and give it to somebody because I'm doing like that, right? Say, hey, here's some soda money for you, you know, here's some money for your coffee, and I'll say, thanks for working. Well, it used to be, you know, that was just like, oh, everybody works. Nowadays, not everybody works. Everybody stay home because the government will send them a check, right? God said, if any man will not work, neither should he eat. In 2 Thessalonians, I'm not sure you have the right reference. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if any man will not work, neither should he eat. In fact, Proverbs 20, 20 verse 4 says, the sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold, therefore he'll beg and harvest and have nothing. You don't work, you don't get it. You don't work, you don't eat. So God ordained work. I mentioned in that preface to my, or the letter to my dad there in that book, hey, dad, thanks for teaching me a work ethic. 
We don't just work so you can provide for our family. We work to glorify God. And we'll get into that in greater detail, talking about being filled with the Spirit later on. Okay, so, man was formed by God. Man was given a job by God. Then man was evaluated by God. Now, um, oh, sorry, let me give you this. I've jumped ahead. Man was restricted by God, before we get to evaluated. Man was restricted by God. That's in verses 16 and 17. So look at Genesis 2, 16. Now. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt eat of it from the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, whenever God says, thou shalt not, when he says, don't do it, it's always for our good and for his glory. You've probably heard that before, right? That's not new truth. But whenever God says, no, remember Psalm 84, 11, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly? God won't hold anything good back from you. Man, aren't you glad God created us with desires? Did, did any of you lose taste and smell during COVID and you ended up eating out of duty, not because you really wanted to? Anybody go through that experience? Now, aren't you glad that normally you enjoy eating food? You know, the whole whole desire for sex was given by God. Uh, it's not like, no, I want you all to go have children. Okay, if I have to. You know, you have a desire for that. But it was made to be satisfied within the confines of marriage. Just like food, there's a right place for food, but uh, I don't know about you, I, I keep an app on my phone, my fitness pal, because i got to track how many calories I take in and how many I burn, because all I do is travel and eat, and if I don't keep track, I really like eating, but i, I got to make sure I'm burning them. Or, you know, it's not wrong to eat, but it's wrong to overeat, right? The sex desire was given by God for right context. The desire to win, that's good, you know, God... I mean, God uh, expresses the idea of excellence. But God, we don't want to just get participation awards. Think about this. The judgment seat of Christ, well, well everybody's a winner. <laughs> no, everybody. Remember Jesus told about the guy that had five talents, and he got another guy's talent, and the guy that had two, he got double, and the guy that didn't do anything with him, then he suffered loss. Yeah, there's not just participation award in heaven. Okay, but... You know, some people, they've got to win at all costs and they get ugly about it. What Satan wants to do is take our desires and twist them. God gave them free access to all the trees in the garden, but there's one in the middle, and it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, no, don't eat that. Why did he say that? There was no evil in their world. Evil had originated with Satan. Remember, I will ascend up to heaven. I will be like the most high. I will exalt my throne above God. The Lord said, no, you won't. Not because God is threatened by rivalry. God has no rivals. God is the eternal one. Satan was a created one. And so when Satan ascend, uh, chose to ascend up to God's place, no, 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 that's not going to happen. So he was thrown out of heaven. Evil originated with Satan. God told man, evil exists in the world, but you don't even know about that. It's just like our kids. We, our, our kids do not need to be told, taught about all of the ins and outs of evil. Evil exists, but we need to protect them, not expose them. They're going to be exposed soon enough. Okay, well, God wanted to protect his children from them. But isn't it amazing? They only had one no-no, and that's where Satan went after them. Man was restricted by God. Restrictions aren't bad. Restrictions reveal our revolt against God. Unless you think it was just Adam and Eve. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to what? His own way, Isaiah 53, 6. So man was restricted by God. 
Very interesting then, I jumped ahead earlier, man was evaluated by God. Look at verse 18. We've got about seven minutes, so I'm going to wrap it up here. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now this is the first time in the Bible that you read not good. Now that's not new, you've probably heard that for years. But isn't it interesting? What was the first time God said stuff wasn't good? No sin in the world yet. For a man to be alone. I was, uh, I was watching Jesse Waters the other night, and he was, they were interviewing young men in their 20s and 30s, and they said, are you dating anyone? Are you interested? I'm like, no, you know, and like, would you like to? Yeah, but I find women intimidating, or it's too much of a burden, or, and I was looking at some of these guys and thinking, oh my, every one of these guys is a really good reminder, it's not good for a man to be alone. <laughs> and now, let me just tell you. 1 Corinthians 7 says every man had his proper gift of God. So understand, not everybody gets married. That doesn't mean it's wrong, okay? But the norm, the uh, stereotype of people getting married, well, that was originated by God, okay? So if, if you're not interested in women, that's okay. That doesn't mean you're homosexual if you're not interested in women. Every man had his proper gift of God. Paul, the apostle most likely was married at some point. I say that because he was a Pharisee, and one of the Pharisaical laws was they had to be married. He was most likely a widower, but you remember, he stayed the rest of his life celibate, and he said, I would that you were as me because of the present distress. During a time of persecution, it seems like he said, you know, I'm totally focused on God's word, and, and Paul was a man's man. Okay, so it's not that if you're not interested in being married or if you're single, that you're less than what God intends you to be, but the norm is for marriage. And God said it's not good that a man should be alone. Our society is teaching everybody, oh no, you know, like marriage is a burden. That's not what God said. That is not what God said. But if you've ever visited the home of a typical bachelor, you'll quickly agree that it's not good that a man should be alone. All right, so notice this then. Man was evaluated by God. And then, letter E, man was tasked with naming the creatures. Given the task of naming the creatures. Look at verse 19. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the earth, brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. You remember studying zoology in school and learning these Latin names and you know, categories of uh, animals? And just trying to memorize the names, the scientific classification of animals would be tough enough. How about coming up with the names of all these people? Understand something. Adam was not some Cro-Mangan man. You know, he was not some Neanderthal. Adam was likely the most intelligent human who ever lived. So I thought Solomon was the wisest. Wisdom and intelligence are not necessarily the same thing. But from whom did Adam learn to speak? From whom did Adam learn everything? He learned it from God. And he was not limited genetically like we are before the fall. He was a perfect person in a perfect body with a perfect mind. And he comes up with names for all the creatures. Amazing. So, uh, he was given the task of naming all the creatures. And then finally, I want you to see man was given a wife by God. Look at verses 20 to 25. Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast in the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Now, we often pair the words help meet as, as a noun. But the word help would be the noun, and meet would be an adjective. Help is the one who assists, who helps. And meat is appropriate for, suited to, adapted to. She's a help fitting for him, a help meat for him. It's, it's not wrong to refer to her as a help meat, but meat is the adjective there. 
So she's a help need for him. And notice this, uh, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh, and stead thereof. The rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. He brought her unto the man. Adam said, this is now born of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. She was taken out of him. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife. They shall be one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So the first marriage was performed by God. Marriage is sanctified by God. Notice the intimacy of marriage. They're naked. They're not ashamed. Because they're one flesh. I, I preach a message once in a while I call marital math. One plus one equals one. Now that's bad math, but it's good theology. Because when it comes to marriage, one person and one person get married and they are one. That's why he says she'll cleave to his wife. And they'll be one flesh. God ordained marriage. I... I want to lay all that as groundwork, and it all sounds so basic, but the basics sound so radical in our present culture. Let me finish with this. I wrote down, gentlemen, listen, you're a special creation of God. He made you for a special task. Do your job. And this is a Father's Day speech that was given in Chicago in 2008. I want you to listen to these words. This was in a church in Chicago, 2008, not that long ago. The speaker said this. If we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit that what too many fathers are in the present world is missing. Missing from too many lives and too many homes. They have abandoned their responsibilities. Acting like boys instead of men. And the foundations of our family are weaker because of it. You and I know how true this is in the African American community. By the way, this is a black person speaking in a black church. He said, you and I know how true this is in the African-American community. We know that more than half of all African-American children live in a single-parent household, a number that has doubled, doubled since we were children. We know that the statistics that children who grew up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crimes, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, they're more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundation of our community are weaker because of this. We also, get, we also need families to raise our children. We need fathers to realize that responsibility does not end at conception. We need them to realize that what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child. It's the courage to raise one. You know who said that? Barack Obama in 2008. I doubt he'd be saying that now. But it didn't change the fact that he was dead on and said that. There are a lot of things, policy-wise, I would not agree with the former president about. Probably more things than not. But I totally agree with what he said. And by the way, he's speaking in a black church for black community. But I want to tell you something. That, that is true across racial lines. The absence of fathers in our homes is just destroying our homes. It's no wonder Satan is on an all-out assault against what's been called the nuclear family or the traditional family. Because family is the foundation for society. And guys, it starts with us. That's why I'm so glad your church takes time to do men's needs. Because what we need is God. 
Father, thank you for the time to just look at that face. It's just kind of foundation. My, my dad was a builder and he, and he built a house. I know we never saw the foundation once the masons poured the concrete and laid the center blocks. No one thinks about the foundation. It's, up, it's underneath, but, but if it's not there, the whole house falls over. The whole house collapses when, when storms come. Please give us a commitment to your eternal word. We won't be able to stay committed to your truth if we don't know you first. Lord, I want to pray. If there's any fellow here that does not yet know Christ as Savior, help them to understand there is a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of damnation. You very clearly said you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And your dear son said, repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Change your mind. Realize you're not good, you're guilty. Realize that your guilt separates you from God. There's nothing you can do about it. But believe the gospel. By grace, we're saved through faith. And we realize that your dear son died on the cross and shed his blood to pay the price for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again. That's the good news. And when we come to him by simple faith, we will be saved, not because of what we do for you, because of what you do for us. I pray you'll bear fruit in this couple of days we have together. And I pray you'll impress these truths deeply in our minds. And it might not just shape our thinking for a week, but for a lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen.